Welcome to Hub Headlines. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Today's program features the best commentary and analysis published in The Hub for February 20th. Up first is Ginny Roth, writing on Canada's plummeting birth rate, how this issue relates to public policy, and why political leaders and elite thinkers should encourage increased birth rates. Amid Canada's newly open immigration debate, a key component remains largely unspoken. Sometimes, though, the subtext breaks through. Last week, the president of a large, publicly funded Ontario college defended his institution's financial reliance on international students by pointing to Canada's baby deficit. A couple of weeks ago, Statistics Canada reported that Canada's birth rate had dropped to its lowest point since the government started collecting the data in the 1920s. Despite the earth-shattering existential nature of this news, media coverage reported the bare facts before quickly moving on, while analysis remained the niche interest of a handful of Canadian think tanks, authors, and cranky columnists. One of the reasons natalists struggle to capture Canadian time and attention is the difficult personal nature of the problem. Our low birth rate is a culture issue, which means there's no easy public policy solution. Another under-discussed factor, though, is that it suffers from a none-of-your-business untouchability. Perhaps most importantly since the advent of the birth control pill, when and whether or not to have children has become just one personal choice in a series of choices, from dating to marriage to career path to family, formation, which we have come to think of as exempt from social norms or collective preference. We've come to this place of social neutrality on important life choices, even though we know they have a measurable impact on the likelihood that people live happy lives. Despite our squeamishness about discussing marriage and babies at a public policy level, our plummeting birth rate is already having impacts on post-secondary education, health care, and housing affordability. And we don't need to look far for an early peek at the dark picture our birth rate trend portends. Of course, Canadians used to be able to take marriage and family formation for granted. Marrying young was the dominant norm, and its inherent purpose was as a first step toward building a family. This life path was so dominant that as society changed, as people became more secular, women more career-oriented, and child-rearing more complicated and expensive, society chafed at the constraints of the old norms. Freedom began to trump duty, and happiness and meaning were seen to be derived from personal inward fulfillment. After the sexual revolution, it was perfectly acceptable to choose to get married and have children, but it was understood the state and society ought to be increasingly neutral on the matter. But as leaders proclaimed that the state had no place in the bedrooms of the nation, many, with perhaps the exception of the one who famously said those exact words, didn't practice what they preached. In fact, marriage became a luxury good. While marriage rates dropped across the board, they dropped significantly more among low-income Canadians. Today, not only are wealthier Canadians more likely to be married, but they're also likelier to have more kids. Worse than the hands-off neutrality of the upper middle class is the increasing disdain for stable, bourgeois family formation by the snobby cultural elite. The creeping dominance of a postmodern worldview in academia, journalism, and even parts of medicine has replaced neutrality around marriage and family formation with active hostility. 
treatises deconstructing marriage as oppression, books about miserable women throwing off the yoke of repressive husbands and demanding children, and long-form articles about the joys of non-monogamy and polycules dominate our social landscape. It's rare to see thought leaders promoting marriage, and those who do are critiqued for platforming privilege. Despite, or perhaps because of, these loud anti-family voices, there are some positive signs that the rare defenders of marriage and family should feel emboldened. Brad Wilcox, one of the loudest voices for family formation in North America, has a new book titled Get Married, Why Americans Must Defy the Elites, Forge Strong Families, and Save Civilization, where he takes up the case for marriage head-on. And not just any kind of marriage, but the kind of lifelong, stable, family formation-oriented commitment that romantic comedies with soulmate themes tend to mislead about. The type of marriage for which a prenup would be a moot point. If Wilcox's podcast tour is any indication, his book is drumming up more intellectual interest than you might think. And it's not just in right-wing circles. In an effort to boost birth rates, left-of-center French President Emmanuel Macron recently rolled out a number of policy initiatives designed to increase family formation and, in making the announcement, actually articulated a desire on the part of the state to see more babies born in France, breaking the liberal individualism personal choice taboo. Other mainstream American thinkers are trying to understand why young people are increasingly lonely and mentally ill, inevitably finding that people are spending a lot less time together than they used to. They're part of a growing consensus that acknowledges that less time spent hanging out, less time spent having sex, and less marriage is clearly, intimately, pardon the pun, connected to our dropping birth rate. Feeling squeamish yet? Well, get over it. To confront the problems caused by low birth rates, we must talk frankly about childbearing, marriage, and even dating. Elite thinkers, public policy experts, and political leaders must get comfortable promoting marriage and increased birth rates as common social goods without worrying. Whether or not doing so implies they're the right choices for every person in every instance. Promoting the power of the success sequence doesn't detract from the achievements of a happy person raised by a single mom. Encouraging healthy dating habits doesn't have to be discriminatory or even heteronormative. And educating women to understand they can have more children, if they start earlier, doesn't condemn them to a life spent barefoot in the kitchen. Shifting social and cultural trends, first to neutrality, then to outright hostility toward families, is what got us into this mess. People with loud voices and big audiences, Taylor Swift, are you reading this? Committed to shifting them once again are the ones who will get us out of it. That was a commentary by Ginny Roth. She is the National Practice Lead for Government Relations at Crestview Strategy. You can find the full text of her article on our website, thehub.ca. Our second essay is by Richard Shimuka, who is a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute who writes on defense policy. He is writing today on the government's lack of national defense transparency, how our ability to access this information is ineffective, and the urgent need for improving our systems. The following is drawn from testimony delivered by Richard Shimuka on February 14th to the Standing Committee on National Defense within the Department of National Defense and the Canadian Armed Forces. Thank you for letting me speak today to the Committee on the Topic of Transparency within National Defense and the Canadian Armed Forces. 
it has relevance to me for a variety of reasons, but none so much as it deeply affects my ability to undertake research in defense policy and strategy in Canada. My focus is on chronicling contemporary defense and foreign policy, and the most significant tools I possess in doing so are the Access to Information Act system, ATI, and interviews with policymakers. I'm going to focus my discussion on how these areas have changed in the past 20 years and affected transparency. In Canada, I feel like this is a gap in our intellectual landscape, especially when you compare us to our allies like the United States and the United Kingdom. Those countries' national security communities and civil societies value such research as an important function, and it is comparatively much more vibrant than in Canada. Why is it important? The traditional and most immediate view is that this is an important form of independent accountability and oversight of government. Yet there are other benefits. One of the more significant failings of our system of governance is the lack of institutional knowledge. The history that guided a policy's creation is frequently forgotten, even if it remains in place. Filling that gap can assist policymakers in crafting better policies in the future. Finally, such research can benefit the government to better communicate policies to domestic and foreign audiences. Even the best public affairs department or the most talented minister will be limited in their opportunity to explain these contextual factors, while analysis by outside researchers can be a critical information source to interested parties and may help advance policy goals. Unfortunately, Undertaking public policy research has become increasingly challenging over the past two decades. I started around 2003 when transparency and oversight were heavily influenced by the fallout of the Somalia inquiry. It revealed systemic efforts by the department to obfuscate aspects of the crisis, which extended to ATI. The lack of transparency forced the department to reform how it operated for the next decade. Over the past 20 years, ATI has become an increasingly ineffective system to obtain useful information on a timely basis. In 2002, relatively straightforward ATI queries would generally provide a good return of documents. A set of ATIs I used to study the 1996 intervention in Zaire provided over 2,000 documents with a very high level of complexity and included a large number of foreign confidences, advice, and sensitive information. The original request took about a year to be released and provided an in-depth view of what occurred during that operation. This would be unheard of today. The amount of pages of documents has decreased year on year, and officials frequently employ highly restrictive interpretations in an effort to suppress the disclosure of some documents, or even claim that no such records have been found. In other cases, requesters are advised that the scope of the request is too broad and forced to truncate their query. Finally, requests frequently take years to be fulfilled, significantly diminishing ATI's value as a research tool. Not all of the reasons for this situation are necessarily intentional. The ATI system today relies heavily on regular departmental staff to assess documentation for release, the same ones that are already overburdened with their day-to-day -day work. It is far from an ideal approach to handling ATI requests. 
Concurrent with the ATI system's enfeeblement, there has been a consistent effort to curtail officials' ability to discuss policies with interested parties. In the years after the Somalia inquiry, DND employed a fairly liberalized communication policy and access to officials was fairly good. One of the most helpful aspects was that the department made available subject matter experts to discuss specific areas. However, around 2005, the policy changed dramatically. Part of it was due to the belief that the war in Afghanistan required message discipline. But there was also a preference by the Harper government to centralize its communication strategy. Access to officials was curtailed and replaced by superficial media response lines from public affairs representatives. Furthermore, the ability to maintain working relationships with officials has become increasingly strained. The most serious rupture occurred after 2015, when Admiral Mark Norman was charged with breach of trust and members of the Future Fighter Capability Project were forced to sign a gag order. These events had a serious chilling effect on the bureaucracy, as individuals felt fear of the potential consequences surrounding talking outside of government. While some of that fear has dissipated over time, there still remains a significant reluctance to speak with candor on major issues. So where are we today? Overall, I believe the poor state of transparency and defense has largely been counterproductive for the government, resulting in the very outcome they wanted to avoid. Public understanding of the military is at an all-time low. This is in part due to the lack of open information available and the adversarial relationship that has developed between the government and outside bodies over access to information. Unfortunately, I do not have an easy solution to this problem. There is a deep-seated view that the current approach is the only way to successfully manage public relations. Seeing past the immediate situation and a radically different future is a tough sell to any government. I fear that it will require another Somalia-scale scandal to impel a government to shift its behavior, which will benefit no party or the country as a whole. That was Richard Shamuka appearing in today's Hub. He is a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute who writes on defense policy. Well, that is it for today's edition of Hub Headlines. We hope you enjoyed the program. To receive our Monday to Friday newsletter, subscribe to The Hub for as little as 25 cents a day. You can do that right now at thehub.ca. This podcast was produced by Alicia Rao. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Gluskin-Granofsky Charitable Foundation and the From Charitable Foundation. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the host of Hub Headlines. Thanks for listening.